this morning, and uh, we had a great uh, conference uh, fellowship this past week here, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and then in Crosby on Friday, and uh, it was a blessing, blessing to, to be here and to fellowship. Good to see all of you and to see some new folks in the in the crowd. We're, we're glad you came. If you're visiting today, we are in a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John. However, uh, this past week was so full that I decided that I would could not and would not do justice to the next passage in John uh, with just such a short time to study. So I've fallen back on a passage from Ephesians chapter 2 that will set the stage for John 6, where we're going next week. So, I'll ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. When we first came here, I think it was about three years into uh, the ministry here at Bethany, I preached through the book of Ephesians. It took a little over four years to get through it. And I've fallen back now on one of those those uh, sermons from that series. So follow along with me, if you would, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verses verse 1 and through verse 3. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's pray. Father... We do thank you this morning that we can come and worship. We worship you now through the ministry of your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would teach us through it. Remind us of the, of the state, the stark reality of mankind through this passage. And I pray that this would set the stage for next Sunday's sermon from John chapter 6. Do your work, Lord, as only you can. Through the power of your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mount Whitney is the highest peak in the continental United States. It rises 14,494 feet from its, to its lofty summit. And from that summit, one can see the glory of the entire Sierra Nevada range. From the peak, one can also see the lowest and deadliest place in the continental United States, Death Valley. It got its name from 18 survivors of a party of 30 people who were attempting to find a shortcut across California during the gold rush in 1849. Death Valley sinks 282 feet below sea level 
and has a record high temperature of 138 degrees in the shade. It is the deadliest, most desolate place in the northern hemisphere. What a contrast of one place to another. One at the top of the world where you can see everything, the other at the bottom where only, it seems only death resides. In this first chapter, in the first chapter of Ephesians, where we to go through it, we would find that it describes God's power in the salvation of Jews and Gentiles alike. No one has ever advanced from such depths as we see here in chapter 2 to such lofty glory, glorious heights of chapter 1 as do the saints of the living God. In this second chapter, Paul has shifted from those heights and the glory of God in salvation to the glory of God in reconciliation. When Ephesians 2 opens, we are spiritual corpses in Death Valley. When it closes, we are not only seated in Christ in the heavenlies, but we are a habitation of God through His Spirit. This passage resembles the first, the first book of the Bible and from Genesis. In Genesis 1, you see the opening scene of a, is a scene of desolation, a scene of chaos and lifelessness. And we see the Spirit of God moving over the waters. In chapter 2, we see the same thing. We see desolation and chaos and lifelessness in these passages that we just read. Then we see the introduction of divine power and then the creation of new life. These verses contain triplets of truth that tell us who we were, who we are, And what we will become. Paul discusses how the sinner who deserves nothing but God's wrath becomes trophies of God's grace. Chapter 1 emphasizes our possessions in Christ. Chapter 2 emphasizes our position in Christ. With all of its possession and authority. No matter where the President of the United States goes, he may be physically in a particular place. His position as a man who leads the nation, however, gives him authority and power, no matter where he is. So with the Christian, regardless of where the Christian might be physically in the world... They have the power and authority in the spiritual realm because of their position in Christ. Paul was a prisoner when he wrote this letter. And yet the power and authority of his life in Christ we have for us here today. How rich we are. But that is not the subject for this morning. 
As we look into chapter 2, I want you to see that even though the Christian is, the Christian church is the habitation of God, a building of God, with the chief cornerstone being Jesus Christ Himself, and believers being fully and fitly framed in Him, that is not where we started. The stark reality of man is found in the first three verses of this chapter. Now, why would Paul spend 23 verses of chapter 1 talking about all the riches that we have in Christ as believers, the heavenly position that we hold, and then interrupt that frame of thought with 1 to 3 in chapter 2. It seems like it's out of place because if you pick it up from chapter uh, 1 verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, and you've started with verse 4, God being rich in mercy. Seems like it flows. But in between there is a, is a, a nugget of truth that is absolutely essential for us to understand if we are going to understand why and what God did in salvation through Christ. Contained in the first three verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians is the clearest, probably the clearest statement in all of Scripture on the sinfulness of man that is lost outside of Christ, with maybe the exception of Romans chapter 1 through 3. It is interesting to note that in 1 through 7 of chapter 2 is one long sentence, just like the long sentence from 1 to 14 in chapter 1. There's some things I want you to see in this passage this morning that, as I said, are really essential to understand. Things that somewhat go against the grain of normal evangelical thinking of our day. First of all, I want you to notice the spiritual condition of the unsaved person. The spiritual condition. This is a devastating description of human of the human condition apart from God. We need to be clear that it is a description of every single person that has ever lived except one. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul is not giving us a portrait of some particularly decadent tribe in the jungle of Africa or Papua, nor is he speaking of some degraded segment of society that seems to be worse than others, nor even the extremely corrupt paganism of our day. No, this is a biblical analysis of fallen man In fallen society, everywhere on the face of the earth. Notice the first thing he says in verse 1. 
You who were dead in trespasses and sins. You who were dead in trespasses and sins. The death Paul refers to here is not a figure of speech such as the death of the uh, spoken of in the parable of the prodigal son of Luke 15 where the father said this my son was dead and is now alive. Rather, it is a factual statement of everyone's spiritual condition outside of Christ. Everyone outside of Christ is dead. That's what Paul is saying. That was true of you. It was true of me. Before Christ came into our lives and saved us, we were dead. One of the first indications of physical death is the body's inability to respond to stimulus. No matter what it might be, the dead person cannot react to stimuli around him. He no longer responds to light, sound, smell, taste, pain, or anything else. He is totally insensitive to all stimuli. Jeremy Bentham, if you've ever heard of Jeremy Bentham, Jeremy Bentham was the father of utilitarianism, which teaches that an action is right only if it serves the good of society. Well, Jeremy Bentham ordered that when he died, <clears throat> that his entire estate, he was quite wealthy, that his entire estate would be donated to the University College in Hospital in London. On the condition, there was a condition, that his mummified body was to be placed in, a, in attendance at the hospital board's board meetings. And so, the London Hospital University mummified his body, stuffed it in those days back in the 1800s with straw and enclosed him in an airtight case. And every board meeting, they would wheel his dead body into the board meeting and stand it up. They had him all tied and propped up in this thing. And when he was brought in, the chairman... Would, would say, he would call for the role of the, of the board and he would say, Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. He couldn't vote. He couldn't voice an opinion. He never responded. He never raised his hand. He never voted. And for, he's been dead for over, well over a hundred years and this is still practiced. He's never voted because he was dead. You get the picture. Such is the case of those who are spiritually dead. One Scottish commentator, John Eady, writes, It is a case of death walking. The biblical statement about the deadness of the unsaved person raises 
problems for many because it does not seem to square with the facts of everyday experience. We look around us and we we see people walking. We see people living. We see people making decisions. And it's hard to think that those people are dead. And those who would vie for a man having a will that can be enacted at any time towards God, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Yet, they are dead. This is what Paul said. We were in that that place at one time. Living in a physical body with a soul that was absolutely dead. There are three kinds of death mentioned in Scripture. And you have to understand that the word death itself means separation. That's what it means. Physical death is the first type of death. We're all familiar with it. Uh, Everyone has seen it or experienced it at some time or another. The, The separation of the soul or life that we have from the body. When it separates from the body, the body goes lifeless. It's dead. Scripture says, by man came death, for as in Adam all die. It is appointed for men to die once, and after that, the judgment. So physical death is the first type. Second is spiritual death. Separation, again, of the soul or spirit from God. Spiritual death is is the, the reality of every single individual that is born on the earth. John writes in his first epistle, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. So what is the absence of life? It's death. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, having their understanding darkened and being alienated from the life of God. That's spiritual death. Third, the third type of death is eternal death. It's called the second death in Revelation 21. It is a separation of an individual's soul from God in eternal punishment from the presence of God. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. These will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. They will all have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. A person who is spiritually dead has no capacity to respond to spiritual things. Seems as though the, the whole evangelical, the whole of the evangelical world is steeped in the lie that all a person has to do is just decide. Just decide. 
Dead people don't decide. Dead people make no choices. There has to be life in order to make those kinds of choices. A spiritually dead person can no more save themselves or make a choice to save themselves any more than a drowning person could try to pull themselves out of the water by grabbing hold of their hair and trying to pull themselves up. It just does not work. The spiritually dead person is alienated from God and from the life of God, according to verse 12 of this, of that, this chapter. John Stott, the commentator, writes, They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of His personal reality, no leaping in their spirits towards Him in crying, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with His people. They are as unresponsive to Him as a corpse. The word dead in Scripture is the Greek word nekros. It speaks of being destitute of life that recognizes and is devoted to God because it is given up to trespasses and sins and inactive with respect to doing right as far as God is concerned. You say, well, what about people who do all kinds of good things? I'm not saying people can't do good things. They certainly can, and they do. But it has no relation to their to a spiritual life in Christ when they're dead in trespasses and sins. And this phrase, trespasses and sins, is where the separation of men from God is traced to. Notice what he says. You were dead in trespasses and sins. The two words seem to be carefully chosen to give a comprehensive amount and account of human evil. Notice what they mean. Trespasses and sins does not simply refer to acts done by people, but to spheres of existence of the person apart from God. It is the sphere in which they live. Draw a circle around a person. And everywhere he goes, the circle follows him. This is the trespasses and sins Paul is speaking of. One does not become a liar when he tells a lie. He lies because he's already a liar in his heart. A thief doesn't become a thief when he steals. He's he's already a thief. He just acts, acts out what's in his heart already. You're not, you see, you didn't become a sinner because you sinned. It's the reverse. You sin because you're a sinner. The word trespass means a false step. It involves either a crossing or or going past a boundary or a deviation from the right path. Whereas the word sin simply means missing the mark. Like shooting a, a bow, an arrow... And your arrow falls short of its intended mark. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. That we have all sinned and fallen short 
of the glory of God. The glory of God is the mark. And we all missed it. Together, these two words cover both the positive and negative aspects or active and passive aspects of human wrongdoing. That is, sins we commit and sins that we, fa- that we fail to do. We some call it sins of, of action and sins of omission. So before God, we're not, all, we're not only rebels who have sinned, we're also failures who have sinned. Someone has said, you cannot live a life for God until you receive life from God. True statement. So true life, eternal life, is fellowship with the living God, and spiritual death is the separation from Him which sin inevitably brings. Those sweet little babies, when they're born, the Scripture says they cry and go astray from the womb. They're born that way. They have no life of God in them. They're little dead sinners already. Notice the depth to which this stark starkness of human condition goes in verse two. In verse two, he says that you um, you walked, uh, see, dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. See, every one of us here that that knows Christ and the forgiveness of our sins, we were once like this. We were walking in those trespasses and sins. It's what we did. It's where we lived. It's what we practiced. We could do no different. We were absolutely helpless before God. The word in which means to live, to to regulate one's life, to conduct oneself or their behavior. The word walk has to do with that living. So the wherein points back to trespasses and sins, and the word walk explains it. The The unbelieving order their behavior regulate their lives within this sphere of trespasses and sins. All their thoughts, all their words, all their deeds are ensphered by sin. Not one of their acts ever gets outside of that circle. Not one. There is no such thing as a scale that weighs one's good from one's bad and if you're better if you if you're heavy on the good side god says okay well i, I guess you're okay that's not that is not biblical truth the scale is already at its bottom on the negative there is nothing on the positive side no one ever acts no, not one of their acts gets outside of that circle. It is what is meant by total depravity. 
and we were naturally enslaved to it and imprisoned to it. Now notice in verses 2 and 3 that there is, you see the unregenerate enslaved condition that is profiled in verses 2 and 3 in several ways. First, he describes us as having followed the course of this world. What does he mean by that? It means that unbelievers follow the lifestyles of other unbelievers. Remember what Jesus said when he stood before Pilate? He said, my my kingdom is not of this world. This world, in this world, this kingdom that is ruled by a cruel taskmaster, a, a, a cruel leader named Satan, has believed, has the unbeliever following their lifestyle and mimicking it by other unbelievers. They experience the world's peer pressure and for the most part, they succumb to it because they don't want to be outed. They don't want to be left out. The word world here actually should be translated age, course of this age. Paul describes it in Galatians as this present evil age. Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. The nature of spiritually dead men responds to the direction of age and the God of this world, Satan. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Back a few pages. 2 Corinthians 4. And notice with me verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see that God of this world? That's Satan. He blinds the minds of people. So that they won't see the truth of their sinfulness before God. This world's vile system of values and ways of doing things. This world's course is no friend to grace. Paul writes, do not be conformed to this age. Same word. Do not have friendship with this Age, James says. John says, certainly do not love this world, this system, this age that we all live in. This world is satanically organized. Its system is operated by hate 
and it opposes all that, that is godly. Jesus, we see it. Do we not see it? It's everywhere around us. And it's becoming stronger as we live. John 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Boy, is that evident. You talk to people and and uh, they just love what they see come out of Hollywood. They just love what they see in our some of our uh, political leaders. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The unbelieving, the unsaved individual will follow the course and traditions of this world, this age. They can't help it because they're imprisoned to it. Secondly, there is a captivity that is in, that it, that is uh, stated here in that next phrase where he talks about following the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. The ruler of the age. Satan, who has an enormous array of demons that do his bidding. The unbelieving follow him. We know that we are of God, John says, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Sinners are persistent in their rejection. And worse, their, the worse their system becomes, the more they try to justify and condemn those who would fight against it. They are of one mind because they have a common leader, their Lord, the prince of the power of the air. Satan is presently the ruler of this world. You, you want to win friends and influence people? Just just tell people that they're following Satan. That Satan is their father. It's true. Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. Every unbeliever is a follower of Satan and a child of Satan. And we were there once too. The words uh, power of the air refers to Satan's host of demons who exist in the heavenly sphere. They're all around. Thankfully, God has his angels all around too. So that believers are not succumbed to them. Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of the age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is our battle as believers. Knowingly or unknowingly, the unsaved world is subject to Satan's influence. They just don't realize it. Because they share his sinful nature and exist in the same sphere of rebellion against God, they respond naturally to his leading and to the influence of his forces. In other words, 
you know, I thought about, thought about this when I was looking this over. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, my mom, my dad and mom gave me once for Christmas a multi-band radio, and it was it was the coolest thing because it had long wave and short wave receiver, and I could dial those short waves in and listen to people around the world, in different places. Uh, maybe they're speaking a different language I didn't understand, but it was to me it captivated my mind. What are those people like, and where are they at? Our you see, the unbeliever is, is not on the same wavelength as God. They're on the wavelength of the world, of the age. That's what they hear. They can't hear anything else. They are in tune with each other. Now there's a further description in the words, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. This talks about the the energy that is energized in the unbelieving world to continue on in this sphere of trespass and sins that they were born into. It works in them. The prince of disobedience is working. Energizing the lives and of his willing for of his willing followers. Those who have no regard for the word and the will of God. In other words, they're following their father. And they do exactly that. John chapter 8, I speak what I have seen with my father and you do what you've seen with your father. They answered him and said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father is what you want to do. He didn't pull any punches with them, did he? Paul makes it very clear that we are the slaves to sin before we we come to Christ. Romans chapter 6, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, that you are the one's slave to whom you obey, whether of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. I love that song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The third influence and the last one is the bondage to the passions of the flesh in which the world lives. Notice what he says in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This was us. Oh, how thankful we ought to be. When we read think, when we read this and think about what we were before Christ, he's talking about our fallen, self-centered human nature. It's with its passions further defined as the desires of the body and of the mind. Paul speaks of this in Romans seven when he says, "Oh, wretched person that I am." You see. 
You're, if you're saved here today, if you know Christ and the forgiveness of sins, you're a new, you're a new creation. Your old nature is gone. It's dead. But your new nature in Christ is, is as MacArthur says, incarcerated in a body of flesh that is fallen. So there's the war. It's our flesh. Our life is in Christ. Our life is Christ. You are These two words, passions and desires, are used synonymously to represent sinful man's complete alignment with his own spiritual, with his own selfish way, spiritually dead way. His nature is driven by passions and desires, and it comes from his flesh and his mind. The flesh flesh refers to the destruction and waste of life that comes when one is abandoned to doing whatever feels good. The hedonism of our day. The word mind indicates the deliberate choices that defy the will of God. 1 John chapter 2 verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. Man is deviant in his nature and his mind. His heart and body are in perfect sync with the force that drives him. And that force is the force of his flesh and his mind. What is the end of it? Well, he says in verse 3, That we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What is the end of this spiritual deadness? This stark reality of the humankind? Rather than all men being children of God, as most of the world likes to think, those who have not received salvation through Christ are by nature children of wrath. John chapter 3, verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the the name of the only begotten Son of God. Condemned. Condemnation. Apart from reconciliation through Christ, every person by nature, through human birth, is the object of God's wrath. His eternal. Eternal judgment and condemnation is upon them. And they will suffer the torment of his punishment in a place that is prepared for those who who continue to willingly reject Christ. This is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place where people scream and cry for mercy but are tormented, a place of unquenchable fire and darkness and eternal damnation and everlasting destruction where God's wrath is constantly poured out on them forever and ever. And outside of Christ, there is no escape from that place. Christ is the only way to get past it, to be received away from it. Some years ago, John MacArthur tells a story about preaching uh, in uh, in India, 
to a group of actors and actresses uh, presenting to them the gospel of Christ. Afterward, a handsome young Indian man came up to him and told him that he was a Muslim, but that he wanted to have Jesus Christ. They went to a nearby room, and after explaining the gospel in more detail, he opened his eyes from prayer and said, Isn't it wonderful? Now I have Jesus and Muhammad. Considerably disappointed, MacArthur told him that Jesus could not be taken from some shelf of of deities and divinities added to other gods. He is exclusive. When you take Jesus, you forfeit all others. He is the Lord. Did not Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, the life? No one comes to the Father except through me. You say, well, Pastor Mark, this is kind of a this is kind of a depressing sermon you're preaching this morning. I mean, can't you lighten it up a bit? Yeah, I can. Turn with me to John chapter six. I'm not going to do this sermon this morning, but I'm going to read the passage. Notice verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing. That I should lose none of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That's why this sermon from Ephesians 2 this morning is so important. Because there has to be a point in time in which a person's a person's mind their their soul comes to life and they can then they can then see that Jesus is the savior that he is the lord when does that happen how does it happen to dead people who cannot respond that's what we're going to look at in the coming days coming sundays So let's, let's bow for prayer, shall we? Our Father, we thank you for the Word of God and for the truth that's found in it. It's true, Lord, that this, this is a pretty negative-sounding thing from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, which are sandwiched right in between all of those blessings, all the goodness 
uh, of God and the grace of God in salvation. And yet, they're there so that we would understand the plight, the stark reality of the, of the deadness of human beings without Christ. Lord, we pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would cause us to cling to you and to your word evermore in these evil days that we live in. And that we would realize that only by the grace of God we are what we are. We, we were sinners, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But you saw fit to make us your own, to bring us to Christ. And he gave us life, life that is in him, eternal life. And we thank you for that. We pray your blessing and ask that you would continue to teach us as we carry on in these scriptures from John chapter 6. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If you're here today...